0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year
1: fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax, it is real.
0: Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands,
1: wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist, you're going to have to tell me.
0: (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic so that you can stay informed, prepared, and... Come. We are all in this together, my friends, and our guest today has a new book that spotlights the people who saw this mess coming last year, back in early 2020, and he tried to prevent it. These people tried to prevent it, and the government systems stifled them. The author is none other than Michael Lewis, whom you may know from books like The Big Short, Moneyball, The Blind Side, and this new book is called The Premonition, A Pandemic Story, Michael Lewis, welcome to Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition. May I call you Michael? Yes.
1: May I call you Bill?
0: Uh, Please. Yes. All right. Uh, Now, the big short, everybody, if you uh, remember the book, was about the crisis that happened when loans were being made on top of loans, where real estate was being sold on top of real estate, and it was uh, led to a financial mess. How does this crisis,
1: this pandemic, compare to that one, for example? Well, everyone went through this one, unlike the last one, right? So, you know, there was some fraction of the planet that took some interest in the financial crisis, but there's not a person on the planet who hasn't experienced this. So that's the first obvious difference. The second is a similarity in sort of the narrative that laid out before me uh, that led me to write a book about it. It was interesting in both cases to see that there was a small collection of people who not only were just, had predicted something like this was going to happen, because the prediction, in a way, is not the interesting part, because whenever anything really bad happens, someone will have predicted it. But in both cases, there were these people who not only predicted it, but did went to unbelievable lengths to prepare the society for it. Or in the case of the Big Short, went to unbelievable lengths to figure out how to make money from it, and stuck their necks out every which way. So they were like, the pig and the chicken at the ham and eggs breakfast. The chicken's interested and the, and the pig is all in. They were pigs. They were all in. And these people, in the frustration with the event, both cases, the books are kind of stories of the frustration of these people. Their frustration sort of describes everything that was wrong with the existing system that made what happened so much worse than it needed to be. Like, for example. Well, for example, the Centers for Disease Control. There's a shallow narrative that's easy to spin that we had this well-run, fine-tuned disease control operation, and the Trump administration came in, politicized it, whacked it around, controlled it so it couldn't do its job, and that they were responsible for for what followed.
0: This would be Redfield and those guys.
1: Yeah. But so the main character of the book is a local health officer named Charity Dean, who has spent a decade trying to control disease outbreak in Santa Barbara County. Outbreaks of like tuberculosis and, and hep C and meningococcal, small outbreaks, but has found over and over again that the CDC actually impedes her work because managing a disease outbreak is inherently controversial. It involves asking people to do things that they'd, they may not want to do. Quarantine, closing some institution, um, vaccinating, whatever it is. And that the CDC was just unbelievably risk-averse, like would not engage until they had the kind of perfect information you have to have to write a, a science paper, an academic paper. And by the time you have that information, the war's over. Disease control is all about working with imperfect information and taking pretty radical action on the basis of it. So you, you could see just through her struggles how uncomfortable the institution was with the, the job that it was assigned
0: When you say a shallow narrative is the CDC was mishandled by a new administration, you're talking about way back. You're talking about 20 years ago.
1: Well, no, the the shallow narrative that you might hear now is it was all Trump. The reason we have only 4% of the world's population and 20% of the deaths is that Trump mishandled this thing. And Trump clearly didn't make it better. But I think it's just like a bigger, more important point. If your mind comes to rest with the ineptitude of Donald Trump, you end up in the wrong place to understand what's going on here, that we didn't actually have the risk management tool that we needed to deal with this particular risk. We had some simulation of it, but not the actual thing.
0: A simulation of the risk management tool. Okay. What is, what do you mean by that?
1: Can I tell a story from the book? That sort of ca- Please. This, is a, this is a metaphor that captures the spirit of the problem. So Charity tells this story about when she was a graduate medical student. This and is she, a woman
0: in Santa Barbara.
1: This is a, this is a health officer. Yeah. And she was living alone in New Orleans got her own apartment. The apartment had a porch on it. And she wanted to kind of impress all the other medical students in the complex. And she planted all these beautiful flowers, but she had no ability to take care of them. And after a while, everybody's praising her flowers and she became became known as like the woman with the green thumb. The flowers start dying. She has some plastic flowers in her kitchen and she patches in the ball spots with 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 (laughs) with 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 her plastic flowers. But then, of course, more flowers start dying. And before she knows it, she's going to Michael's Arts and Craft and buying buckets of plastic flowers. And she's going through this very weird uh, exercise of, like, watering the plastic flowers on her porch to persuade everyone that these are still her flowers. Until finally, finally, someone comes onto the porch and smells one of these things and grabs Oh, my God, the whole thing's fake. (laughs) The CDC, is, I think, is a bit like that. There was a time deep in its history where it was sort of like designed for battlefield command. I mean, it eradicated smallpox. There was a reason why it had a reputation for having these beautiful flowers. But we allowed it in various ways to change and corrode and become less effective in the actual battlefield command. And the story in the book I mean, this is the end of the book. It's sort of like an attempt to figure out what happened. But if you talk to old timers at the CDC, they'd say there was a real breaking point in the late 70s and early 80s when they actually screwed up, at least to the appearance of um, the American public. The swine flu? The swine flu. When they vaccinated everybody against a pandemic that never came, even though there was kind of expert consensus that, oh, my God, this thing is coming in the fall. And so people died from the vaccine. And My
0: mother claims she got very sick from that vaccine. Is that, that's her yeah. claim.
1: And at that moment, they're run by permanent civil servants. The person who runs the CDC is not a political appointee. They have enormous clout, and they have an instinct—they have a bias towards action rather than a bias towards inaction. The next thing that happens in its history, the significance, a few years later, Ronald Reagan turns the job into a, a politically appointed job, the job of running the CDC. And when you do that, you change the incentives in the institution. One— The person who's running the place is picked not from the pool of all Americans, in which you get to kind of pick whoever's best, no matter what their political affiliations. You pick from this small pool of politically connected and pleasing characters to the White House.
0: But these people have to be medically competent, don't they?
1: Up to a point, Redfield would not be... If you talk to interview people at the CDC about Redfield in that job, universally, people say, in a normal world, he never would have been in that job. He was not thought to be competent. And Redfield did things that were just extraordinary, like preventing doctors from testing the returnees, the American citizens who were returned from Wuhan in the beginning of the pandemic.
0: Did he really single-handedly do
1: that? Yes. Well, I mean, he did it through a chain of command, but it came from him. So James Lawler, who runs this pretty exotic medical center in Omaha, it's a federal center to which people who've got alarming diseases get sent. Some of the Ebola patients were sent uh-huh. there. Yeah. And they're there to be, to be cared for and also to be studied. The Americans from Wuhan were sent back to Omaha. They were actually housed in a National Guard barracks very close to this facility. And Lawler wanted to test them. I mean, naturally, right? There are 80 of them or however many in this. He says, there's no way some of them don't have COVID. And he asked the CDC guy to test them. And the CDC, because I, I have to bounce that up. And it came back from Redfield directly that you're not to test them because to test them would be performing experiments on imprisoned persons. Uh, oh, wow. All of them wanted to be tested. So you had this very odd situation where the director of the CDC was intentionally not shining a flashlight under a rock where there was likely going to be some virus.
0: So hang on now. So The swine flu, they vaccinated against a bunch of people. Some people got sick from the vaccine, maybe my mother. Uh, And so that gave the CDC a bad reputation in 1976 like that, the disco era.
1: It made it more vulnerable. More vulnerable to what? To political influence, Uh to political control. It's the first time where the White House is saying they're screwing us up. And they need to be on a shorter leash. So David Sensor, who is the CDC director at the time, and who actually made the very brave decision, I think it was the right decision to vaccinate, even though it ended up being the wrong one. I mean, the process was what you'd want the process to be. The it's people what you were
0: talking about earlier. It's imperfect.
1: The, the it's imperfect. You
0: imperfect. You got to take risks. You got to try stuff.
1: And our political culture is really ill-suited to acknowledging that sometimes people do the right thing and it has the wrong outcomes. We're judging by outcomes.
0: In the public's defense... When you vac- insist yep. on vaccinating people and then people die, come on,
1: that's bad. <laughs> well, it's true. That's true that it's bad. But when you're dealing with disease outbreaks, the other out... I mean, imagine what would have happened if they didn't vaccinate everybody. Oh, this everybody. you got the wrong right. guy
0: over so here. No, hold no, on. Right. But they
1: don't vaccinate you. Let's, do, let's play the other scenario out. All the relevant experts say we've never seen a new pathogen that's so transmissible and that is proven lethal, not lead to a pandemic. If we, instead of vaccinating people, we say create the vaccine, but stored it in refrigerators. So then the pandemic comes and it takes us months to vaccinate people after it's sweeping through the population. Hundreds of thousands of people die. What happens then? Yeah. You'd be sitting here saying that's the most outrageous decision I've ever seen, not vaccinating people. Now you're not going to stick needles in 200 million arms without something bad happening, right? Censor knew he was taking a risk.
0: Just remind everybody, what year is this?
1: 1976. Yeah. So he writes a memo after having gathering all the experts, but only his name on it, telling the president that the consensus is we need to vaccinate everybody. Thus, kind of putting the president in a box because of the CDC's reputation. He kind of couldn't not do it. And when he did this, he said to one of his colleagues, he said, I've got to do this alone. My name's got to be alone on the bottom of the memo because there's always a risk this is going to go wrong. So he knew he was sticking his neck out. It was like a moment of great courage. And the people around him are quite moved by how he did it. But anyway, so he was right. He gets fired. He, he descends in alcoholism. It, his l- life kind of falls apart for a bit. He feels kind of shamed and excommunicated from his public health people. He leaves Atlanta, never goes back. But his successor, he was able to designate his successor, a guy named Bill Feggy. Bill Feggy ran the CDC during the end of the Carter years and the beginning of the Reagan years. And what Feggy says is you saw this steady encroachment of the political process. He's the last permanent civil servant to run the CDC. He was not a presidential appointee, but Feggy sees that, for example, when the CDC generates research that shows aspirin given to small children, to babies, can cause uh, Rye syndrome. Aspirin manufacturers go to the White House lobby to have the research shut down, and he's so outraged. He says, "Like, I can't believe they would risk the lives of children of for kids. the sake of, of kids." And so he he quits in outrage. And right after he quits, the White House sort of formalizes things and says the person who runs the CDC is going to be appointed by the president and so can be fired instantly at any moment by the president. So everybody
0: out there, when people quit in anger, you don't get anything done. You know, he says change
1: things. You're absolutely right. And he says this. He says this. He said, you know, that was the one mistake I made that should have made them fire me because I I was hard to fire because I was a career civil servant I had protections they, they couldn't have fired me for trying to save the lives of small babies he regrets it to this day we'll be
0: back right after this
1: Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now save up to $800 on select adjustable mattress sets only at StearnsAndFoster.com. Lesser savings may apply.
0: Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices.
1: That's why you rack. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because...
0: A turning point for me and the reason that you and I are having this conversation today was when solar panels were taken off the White House, stopped teaching the metric system. To me, it was part of the whole shift away from respecting science. Is that part of it? Where, let's say, an administration decided that political a political appointee in the CDC was better than uh, a career
1: civil servant? I think it's a decision to just pay less attention to science and pay more attention to short-term political considerations. And I bet if you put in a room the people who made that decision, I bet they wouldn't say we don't respect science. I bet they'd all pay lip service to science, trust experts, blah, blah, blah. But it's a feeling that you can't let the scientists control things. And in fact, there was this very weird exercise that the Carter administration engaged in after the swine flu affair. They brought in um, a Harvard professor named Richard Neustadt and gave him a hall pass and said, you can interview anybody and write us a private memo about this episode. And he did. And it ended up, they, the Carter administration ended up liking it so much because it vindicated their decision to fire the CDC di- director uh, that they released it publicly. This little book called the Swine Flu Affair. What runs right through it is these experts, these medical experts, these scientists are politically naive, and they didn't weigh sufficiently the optics of the thing never happening and the vaccine causing problem. They didn't weigh the the political risks of this. But I mean, I come back to the odds were very strong. We were going to have a pandemic in
0: 1976.
1: In 1976, and. They're supposed to be weighing the political risks just because it looks better if you screwed up by not administering a vaccine. I don't think it looks better, actually. What it is, is like we're dealing with battlefield fog of war decision making. And this institution needs to have that kind of latitude to, be, to make mistakes, because if you want them to be guided by political optics, it's one thing. If you want them to be guided by making the best probabilistic judgment, it's another thing. And this book kind of says, really, we need to hand it over to the optics because the society, they mentioned like the rise of modern media. At that moment, they're obsessed with Walter Cronkite. It's like the television's too powerful. When, When Walter Cronkite gets on the TV and says, well, they screwed up, two people died in Pittsburgh from the vaccine, it's catastrophic. And these scientists don't understand any of that. What's going on now? What happened last year? Is it the same thing? It's the same thing. Over a period of, I think, a generation or so more, you had this place that was pulled in a direction through a a bias towards inaction. The sin of omission is easier to explain than the sin of commission. And the first step the CDC always makes is very cautious, because you don't get in trouble for what you didn't do, you get in trouble for what you did do. So that's what happened. And they retreat into the pose of a basically essentially an academic institution and let me tell you um, can i tell you another story that will Please, just yes. shock shock you all right there is a young man in santa barbara turns up in the emergency room at the local hospital cottage what, Hospital. what
0: year what year
1: 2017 16 recent his legs are purple he's got meningitis b i think it is it takes a while to figure it out, oddly.
0: Is it an easy thing to diagnose? It's
1: usually an easy thing to diagnose, but something got screwed up with his original test. The symptoms were so clear, but the test was saying something else. So it just it, They were slowed down for a day or two. But the local health officer, Charity Dean, does not like this actually get in her way. She's worried because he plays on the lacrosse team at University of California, Santa Barbara. He's in a fraternity. He's incredibly social. She's worried that this thing is like spreading on the campus, and so are the health officers at UCSB. And so the CDC is brought in to advise, and charity, the the local health officer says, we need to assume this thing is spreading, and we need to do some things.
0: Okay, when you bring in the CDC to the University of California, Santa Barbara, who is it? Does he or she come from Atlanta? Does she come from LA? What happened?
1: L.A., and it's mainly what you're doing is you're on conference calls with 20 people, but the, and there's a guy who's the meningococcal guy, and he's basically mansplaining her what to do and what not to do. But she has a very clear course of action. She wants to close the fraternities, thin out the dorms, get some hotel rooms to put kids in. Start um, testing people. Test people and administer a vaccine that's been approved in Europe, but is still in trials with the FDA. And the, the C- So it's the a C- risk.
0: It's a risk on top of a risk.
1: It's a risk on top of a risk. And the CDC people are outraged. They think she should do nothing. She should wait and see to see what happens next. Maybe he didn't give it to anybody. Uh, And and, maybe
0: monkeys fly out of my nose.
1: As soon as somebody,
0: (laughs) when you're in a fraternity, playing cross, hanging out with God,
1: yeah. And kissing people, and he was kissing people. So the health people, there's actually panic in Santa Barbara over this. The health director on the campus is desperate to take action. They listen to this local health officer, Charity Dean, and the CDC says, we don't agree with any of this. If anything goes wrong, your neck is on the line. You actually get in a fight over this and then the cd this is where it gets interesting the cdc says if you're going to do these things these measures you're taking take them one at a time so that we can study the effects of oh, each oh that's one. very
0: science it's a very scientific right yeah.
1: right so that we can know what worked and cherry said i'm not going to wait around until until yeah. some other boy turns up with purple legs this boy's having his legs amputated so end of the story There is no outbreak. Whatever she does, I think one other person tests positive, but they don't get very ill from it. It's Anyway, whatever she did, stopped the problem. Worked. A year later, she gets a call from the CDC saying, there's another outbreak on another college campus, and we would like you to talk to them about what you do, because you're the expert now. So
0: if you're a king of the forest, if you're running the show over there, based on this book, based on what you've learned and the people you've met, people you've interviewed, what would you change? What could we have done differently in 2020, 2019, 2020?
1: I wouldn't so much rewind the tape and say what we could have done differently. I mean, it's kind of obvious some things we would have done differently. We we wouldn't have had, for example, a single point of failure in testing where we were completely dependent on the CDC for a, a test. And their test not only doesn't work, but they've slowed us down for weeks while they're trying to figure out how to make it work and lead everybody to think it's coming when it's, it's not coming. And so that, that absence of testing was catastrophic from January to late March. What I would do is I'd back away from it and say, how do we create an institution that can take the risks it needs to take?
0: But this means somebody in charge, the yeah. president or somebody in charge is going to have to be able to tell people, wear a mask. Uh, There's a rule. You got to
1: get vaccinated. That's a rule. You can't go hang out together. That's a rule. Is that possible? The CDC director should have had the same demeanor and the same sense seeming detachment from the president as Anthony Fauci did. Anthony Fauci is a permanent civil servant. So the first thing you do is you rewind the tape and you say this job belongs. It's a job that the president can't fire on a limb. Maybe appoints the first one or we recreate what we had before. How was the person picked in the good old days? As a practical matter, they bubbled up from within the institution and and presented themselves to their colleagues as someone who was quite capable. You know, the Department of Health and Human Services would appoint the person, but once appointed, it was not contemporaneous with the presidential term. The person could just stay across, across administrations. I think this isn't just the CDC. I think we've queered our ability to govern ourselves. By allowing a lot of these those kind of jobs that are really expert jobs and then really not ideological to drift into the hands of the president to a point and it makes us very inefficient i mean it creates discontinuity in the organizations right it means it
0: also makes us vulnerable look what happened my good look what happened
1: i know it makes us vulnerable one of the other things that was just that caused my character's hair to to catch fire. You're
0: talking about charity? Uh, Not
1: charity. Carter Mesher, who was... Carter Mesher, yeah. And the, and the Wolverines, the guys who designed this, the pandemic strategy in the Bush White House and who had become kind of gifted, as they call it, redneck epidemiologists. They, they understood that at the beginning of an outbreak, it's muddy. It's, the picture is very muddy. You've got to be very resourceful in figuring out the things you need to figure out, like transmissibility and lethality. And they had done that by January the 20th.
0: Of 2020, so a, a 20- year and a half ago, at yeah,
1: least. J- and a month before the CDC stands up and acknowledges it's a threat. So they were there was a month that was just wasted.
0: And a month when people are all shaking hands and kissing and carrying yeah. on is yeah. a, all, <laughs> just all exponential enormity. And
1: yeah. A month when nobody was paying too much attention to the fact that the CDC didn't have a test that worked. It was a month that should have been a month of urgency. And these weren't chicken littles. I mean, these were people who really knew the material and who had actually uh, lines of communication with people in the administration and with people in the CDC. And they couldn't get anybody to listen to them, except they could get governors to listen to them. Once the governors realized that the federal government's not going to come save me, they were able to like persuade some governors they needed to take action. But the point is people did know, and it wasn't, they could show you why they knew and how they knew from, you know, The death statistics that they had dug out of Chinese websites in in Wuhan, they were different from the officially reported statistics. Oh, wow. Wow. They were doing doing that kind of thing.
0: Uh, That's what you're saying. That's muddy. You just got to try to figure out as much as you can from all the different sources you can.
1: Yes. And because the big point is that you're always looking in the rearview mirror with disease. If what you're responding to is the first American death, you're responding to an infection that occurred a month earlier. And it's an infection from a virus that is replicating exponentially. So by the time you get to death, it's too late.
0: So here you are. You're in charge now. What are you going to change? You're going to change how the head of the CDC
1: is picked? You're going to change that culture somehow? I'm going to immediately do two things. The CDC is now a permanent career servant. The CDC's communication team is not White House appointed. It's not political people. It's a permanent communication arm of that agency, independently able to kind of get out and talk to the American people. This is somehow how it is at the National Institutes of Health. It's better at the National, yes. I don't know what the communication operation is, but Anthony Fauci, the reason he was able to kind of maintain some independence was his status. Trump couldn't fire him on a whim. I then say, I look at the whole apparatus. I say, and acknowledge that there's always going to be bureaucratic inefficiency, a protectiveness about their space, I anchor disease response inside the White House at the top. There's like a person who is the the pandemic czar, who is coordinating all the agencies because it isn't just the CDC it responds. I mean, the FDA has had horrible problems. We have horrible problems getting rapid tests approved. The FDA is partly responsible for that, restricting people from other people from creating tests in the beginning of the of the pandemic. So I would anchor in the White House. I'd have like someone who is like a always front of mind, pandemic disease person uh, who's sort of in charge of like coordinating the the administrations. But then I'd kind of, I'd step back and I'd say, look, where were the vulnerabilities that we saw in the system? And where you saw it was at the local level, that essentially we fight disease at a local level. It is naturally a local, it's like, it's war. It's like, it's where it's happening. I would empower these local health officers in a new way. We got 3,500 of them. It sounds like you're valuing civil service. Oh, my God. Yes, I'm valuing civil service, but I'm also I've got to give them the tools that they need. I need to give them the weapons they need to fight the war. Part of the problem in all this is the status structure in public health. The CDC sits at the top and those guys are like the gods. When in fact, the really important characters are these local health officers who, who report are fu- the thing when it starts, and yeah. and who fi- and who fight it on the ground, and who have to tell the local population, "You've got to wear masks," and you've got to be trusted. They've got to be trusted. Got to be trusted. So I pl- invest enormous energy into making that an elite core with high status, like h- if possible, higher status than the people in Washington. You're not going to pay them, are you? Yes, that would I'm going to tax dollars. That's crazy. No, I'm I'm not going to just pay them. I'm going to create an Oscars for them where the best civil servants are on national television and they're getting awards for stuff they did. And the thing about this space, it's not like, I don't know, restaurant inspection. It is an inherently dramatic job. Disease control. It is amazing what goes on every day in America, even before COVID. It's a Netflix series. It is not hard to interest people in the person if you pay attention. It could be a New York Times bestseller, Michael. (laughs) <laughs> possible.
0: Now, here's the sentence that really struck me in your book. This particular story is about the curious talents of a society and how those talents are wasted, if not led. That's what you're talking about, right? These local officials are really
1: skilled uh, people. Not all of them, because we've, we've rained nothing but excrement on them for the last 30 years. But the best ones are unbelievable. I mean, they're action heroes. I had a pick of Half a dozen characters I could have set as the main character of the book, they're action heroes and they suffer the lives of action heroes. They have people sending them death threats. They have mobs forming outside their houses. They have I mean, it's, their lives are filled with the conflict that they tolerate for the sake of the greater good.
0: The greater good. So of all the books you've written, you have written some fantastic books that have been tremendously influential. This one sounds like,
1: for lack of a better adjective, the most important. Time will tell, right? Because what makes it important is how people respond to it. It is the book, I think, that if you said, Michael, you've got to enter your your writing in a competition 20 years from now, what you did was worth doing kind of competition. Yeah. It's the book I would hand over. Wow. This one, there was a huge amount of serendipity in, in finding the characters, But it had the three best characters I've ever had. Wow. And they're telling a story of monumental importance. And it has to do with the the ability of, of the society to survive. So it isn't just about a financial crisis.
0: It's life and death.
1: Life and death of a culture. So of a way of life. So I thought, yes, it's going to be hard to find a subject again that is as good as this.
0: Wow. Everybody, our guest today has been Michael Lewis. Wow, and he's written his most important book with his most compelling characters. My goodness, The Premonition, A Pandemic Story, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time. This has just been fantastic. Thanks for being interested. Science Rules Coronavirus Edition is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is Luz Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Josephine Martiran is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Halford And remember at Stitcher and around the world, Science Rules. One more thing, everybody, after you wash your hands, get vaccinated or get a plan to get vaccinated as soon as you can. Stitcher. Justin, and so good.